kind of sore from yesterday. Anybody relate to that one? I told Eric on the way home, you know, I'm, I know I'm young still, but it's not the same like it used to be. I, I, like in my mind, I can envision, envision myself doing something on the basketball court, and it just doesn't happen. So, whatever that's worth. I'm going to read scripture for today. Could you stand as we honor God's word? Today we're going to, I'm going to open up the book of Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. If you have your Bibles with you, could you open it to that passage? Um, the passage will also be behind me on the screen if you don't have it. Um, feel free also to share with someone next to you. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. God, any authority that we speak by is because your word is declared. God, as I preach this morning, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would truly fill me and speak through me, God. I am very conscious of my imperfections, Lord, and I sincerely need you. Lord, we need you. Would you humble us, God? Would you open our hearts to hear from you? Will we not be quick to turn off listening or quick to ignore because you're working in our hearts? But will we let you do the work that you would have in each of us as individuals? and as a body here at Good News. God, we commit this time to you, eager, Lord, so eager to hear from you. In the name of Jesus, our great God, amen. I titled my sermon today, Sacred in Sin City. Never seen the movie Sin City? Never read the graphic novel? And after reading the summary and reviews of the movie, I don't want to do either. Um, but I think the title characterizes not just Chicago that we live in, but the culture that we live in. It pervades our culture, this idea of sinfulness. It's what our culture values. 
It is kind of the norm. It's the way that we are stuck. And I want to know what it means to be someone who lives sacredly in Sin City. The sermon stems out of several weeks of prayer and meditation, asking God what to preach on. And at least uh, four different things came to mind as I pondered what text to choose, what topic to preach. The first one is this reality that our culture, the sin in it, is so seducing. It allures us. And in particular, I felt a, a specific burden for those of us who are here today and are single. Those of us who live in the culture that is counter-Christian, as anti-Christ, you're pursuing holiness, yet our culture is antagonistic toward you as a single man or as a single woman of God. And on the other side, I felt a particular burden for families. We see this pervasiveness of a breakdown of the home throughout our society. And I feel the burden for the church. I feel the burden to know, God, how does it look to be sacred as a family in this city? I felt burdened by the constant the constant temptation that faces us through media, through billboards, through television, internet. Temptations towards sexual immorality. Temptations for greed, for arrogance, for thinking that we're good. And fourthly, the burden is that the Holy Spirit would purify us and that we would live Holy, holy in this generation. So thus it is, sacred in sin city. I recognize that here present with us, there are all types of people, young, old, married, single. And there are also those of you here who definitely know that Jesus Christ is your forgiver of sin, that He is your hope for eternal life, and that your confidence and trust is in Him. I recognize that there are those here who have made that profession, but your life is not exemplifying that whatsoever, whether you are or are not aware of it. And I also recognize that there may be some of you here today who are kind of here just kind of uh, investigating, if you will, not sure where you stand in relation to Jesus Christ. You believe He existed, but whether or not He is God, whether or not He died for you, whether or not that He offers hope for eternal life, you're not certain about. And for all of us, I believe Titus 2 has a word, has something to instruct us. And at the end of this message, there's a decision we all have to make. When we take these words... And will we be the type of person who rejects the ways of this world, not the world itself, but the ways of this world, to live countercultural lives fueled by the beauty of the gospel? Will you see the goodness, the goodness of Jesus Christ dying on a cross, the gospel, as so beautiful 
that you want to live counterculturally. And for every single one of us, that's a decision we have to make. And I pray that you become confident in that decision in one way or another at the end of this message. As we open up God's Word to you, I want to kind of give you a summary of the book of Titus. Titus was a pastor in an island called Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. Titus was put there by the Apostle Paul who was leaving the, 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 the island and so told him, Titus, you have a job to do. You are here in Crete to establish leaders, elders in the church here. And after a certain period of time, chapter 3 tells us that Paul intends to replace Titus and have someone else take his spot and have Titus join him for further work. At least six times in this book, the idea of good works comes up. Paul's urging Titus to tell his people we've got to live practicing good works. But at the same time, Paul never, never implies that their acceptance by God, their forgiveness, is dependent upon good works. He says in chapter 3 that he saved us not by works done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul has instructions for Titus. He tells him, tell these various people on how to live the Christian life. If you look at with me at verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul tells Titus, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men, this is one category, are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Verse 3, another category. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women, which is the third category, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men, fourth category, to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an op- opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about you. A final category, slaves, workers, are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that everything may, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Five categories of people. people older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and slaves. And he instructs them how to live their lives with integrity, how to be above reproach, how to conduct yourself in a way that is honorable, that honors God. And at the end he says there in verse 10, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You ever think about that? That you could wear upon yourself sound doctrine? That you can put on and clothe yourself with truth. And that's what he wants them to do. But here in my passages, we're going to look at in verses 11 through 15, he continues that thought with the word for, which points back. 
He's saying, I want you guys to live in this way for this reason. And what is the reason? There in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And here in this verse, we see the first principle by which we can live sacred in Sin City. If we're going to be people who pursue holiness and honor God in this city, we must recognize that the gospel at its very essence is beautiful. It is so beautiful that it provides the fuel by which we live our lives. You ever thought of the gospel as beautiful? It says that the grace of God has appeared. Now, we can exemplify grace, can't we? We've seen grace lived out. Have you ever seen grace manifested? Have you ever seen grace revealed in person? Paul says the grace of God has appeared. It's made visible and it brings salvation for all people. See, Paul has in mind Jesus Christ here. See, in the incarnation, when Jesus, who is God Almighty, eternally passed, became a human being, took on flesh, grace appeared to us. And at the cross, the greatest display of grace was revealed. That is how Jesus Christ authored the gospel. That at the cross, God would take on the sin of humanity, of me and of you, and give us eternal life. And Paul says the grace of God has appeared and it brought salvation, it brings salvation to all people. Now Paul's not saying that every single person is going to have salvation. It might seem like that at first glance, but that's completely against everything he teaches throughout the New Testament. But what he is saying is that this offer of salvation will be made to all peoples. The salvation will be brought to them. To the Iraqi in Baghdad, or as we have missionaries in Vanuatu, the, the, the Stapletons, it will be brought there. Or to the Popo local people in Mexico. It will be brought to all peoples. That is the beauty of the gospel. It knows no limit. And Paul says this is the basis by which we live our lives. Now, why is the gospel beautiful? How, how is the gospel beautiful? Would you think that God would become a man? That's a beautiful thought. Why would he do that? But it was love that brought him. He walked a sinless life, did Jesus do? Yet at the garden of Gethsemane, he is crying out to his Father to take that cup that he knew was coming but still had the right mind to say not my will but yours be done knowing that this was necessary for salvation that's beautiful it's beautiful that on the cross while those who mocked him who nailed him there that he could tell them he could tell his, he could cry out to the father forgive them they don't know what they're doing they're, they're ignorant right now. That's beautiful. It's beautiful that right there, the wrath of God was satisfied on Jesus, 
and was not extended to me or to you. That's beautiful. It's beautiful that we can be forgiven. It's beautiful that we've been redeemed, that we've been adopted into God's family. It's beautiful that as, first, as John 1 tells us, that those who believe in Him, He gave the right to be called children of God. It's a beautiful thing that God has brought salvation to us. And if this, is our, this has to be our starting point. Because when we're gripped by the beauty of the gospel, then we say, you know what, God? I want my life to respond to that. I want to live in such a way that honors that. Isn't there a great rest to lay your head down at night knowing that your eternal destiny is secure not on your own merits but on the perfection of Jesus? To be sacred in sin city we have to recognize the beauty of the gospel but we also must embrace the title of rebel and live counterculturally. Now what I mean by this is this reality that the culture is doing one thing and to be a Christian in the culture we've got to do another. Are we not rebelling against it? Aren't we living counter-culturally? Paul says that in verse 12 that the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. You see that? It says that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people and it trains us or instructs us or teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. When Jesus Christ came on this earth, He taught us, He provided for us a new way of living, a new example to follow. And when we've trusted in Him, we have the Holy Spirit that fills us and is our teacher. And He teaches us how to live in such a way that renounces or denies or says no to ungodliness and worldly passions. That's countercultural. Because when the world is saying, live ungodly, and the Spirit of God tells us, don't live ungodly, that's countercultural. If you're going to be sacred, if you're going to live in holiness, in sin city, you've got to be countercultural. If you're doing what the culture is doing, there's nothing holy about that. Ungodliness is the lack of reverence or piety toward God. It is a blatant rebellion to God. Worldly passions are the various desires that drive people toward a way of rebellion toward God. And Paul says we need to renounce these things, that the Spirit of God teaches us to do that, that the grace that Jesus shows us exemplifies for us how to do that. Now I've got to say this, that passions in and of themselves are not bad. Passion is not bad. It's the adjective worldly that makes a passion bad. Sex is a passion. Sex is created by God. In and of itself, it is not bad. But worldly sex is self-centered. It is self-gratifying at the expense of another. 
It is without the context of marriage. Worldly sex is destructive, dangerous rebellion. Paul tells us we need to renounce these ways of living. Now as I think about renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions, there are three things that I want to address, and it's just something I really feel God's laid on my heart. And they all start with M, which is really nice because it helps me memorize it. First one is modesty. Second is music. And the third is movies. What does it mean to be sacred in sin city with reference to modesty? What does it mean to be holy in the way that one dresses? And naturally, this topic of modesty is naturally geared more toward women than it is to men. So I'm going to address it toward women because I believe that's what God wants me to do this morning. We live in a world that is anti-Christ. This anti-Christ world sets the standard for what fashion is, to what uh, cool is, to what beauty is. And unfortunately then, the stores we shop at are influenced by an anti-Christ world. My sisters in Jesus Christ, I, I can't imagine how difficult it is to want to pursue modesty to be at a store that doesn't want you to be that. If that is your aim, go the extra mile. You might have to say no to certain stores because you know that they will not make you more like Jesus. You might have to go on and try on those third, that fourth, that fifth, that sixth, that seventh pair of jeans to make sure that your outfit is modest. If you're concerned about this, when you stand before a mirror at a shopping mall or at home, prayerfully ask the Lord, Dear Jesus, does what I wear exemplify the gospel that is beautiful? Does this shirt communicate that Jesus is my Savior? And in the counter-Christ world, that's hard. But if you're going to be sacred in Sin City, that's what you've got to do. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And that's not to say that you cannot be stylish. That's not to say that you can't look beautiful. But men of God, wouldn't you agree with me that when a woman seeks to honor Christ in her beauty with the way she dresses, is that not the most attractive thing? And when we as men not put burdens on our sisters that push them away from holiness, but draw them to it. A second example of ungodliness and worldly passions is with reference to music. The end of all music, said Bach, should be the glory of God. And the fact that many who are doing music today don't know God 
shows that the goal of their music probably isn't the glory of God. I'm not trying to say that we can't listen to secular music, but I do want us to ask the question, we bounce our head to that beat or to that rhythm and we turn off our iPod, where have your affections been pointed toward? What types of passions have been aroused in your soul? Passions for the gospel or passions for the world? Does the music you listen to subtly taint the beauty of the gospel to mar the beauty of the cross? If at the end of the day, the things that enter your ear distance you from an eternal perspective, what will that do to you long term but to take you away from eternity's mindset? And we can ask the question, well, how far is too far? What is or is not appropriate? And that's a tough question to answer. But I think more times than not, we do know the answer before we've asked the question. Charles Spurgeon said, I sometimes get this question put to me concerning certain worldly amusements. May I do so-and-so? And he says, I am very sorry whenever anyone asks me that question because it shows that there is something wrong or would not be raised at all. If a person's conscience lets him say, well, I can go to A, he will very soon go on to B, C, D, E, and through all the letters of the alphabet. When Satan cannot catch us with a big sin, he will try with little ones. It does not matter to him as long as he catches his fish. What bait he uses... Beware of the beginning of evil. For many who bade fair to go right have turned aside and perished amongst the dark mountain in the wide field of sin. That's a telling statement. Jude tells us to be careful when grabbing one out of fire because we ourselves might be burned. But what if we ourselves are sticking our hand in the fire for no reason whatsoever? We will get burned. A third example of ungodliness and worldly passions is movies. You can throw TV in in there as well, but TV doesn't start with an M, so I couldn't go with it. You ever been amazed by what passes for PG? I'm embarrassed to watch PG movies sometimes with my daughter around. Let alone a PG-13 movie. I don't do that with her around. But if I had a 13-year-old, most of the things we see on PG-13 are things I wouldn't want my 13-year-old to see. We have to be discerning, certainly. But I want to go after even something more obvious that I feel like is not as obvious at times to people in the church, certainly not those outside. And that's this matter of nudity in movies. What value is there to set your eyes on someone who is not your spouse? What standards do you set on your movie? 
How do we screen what you will watch? What value is there in watching a movie with sexual nudity as a single man or a single woman of God? Does it progress you in your sanctification? Are you adorning yourself with sound doctrine? What value is there in watching movies with sexual nudity as a married man or a married woman? Tell me how that strengthens your marriage. Tell me how those images bolster your love for your wife or for your husband. How do those things create a godly household? I know these things may sound harsh, but I think this is part of the problem with the church in America. Do we know holiness? Do we know what it means to be countercultural? To deny ungodliness and worldly passions, be fueled by the beauty of the gospel? What do we see as beautiful then, if not the gospel? I love my alma mater, Moody Bible Institute. There was one day that infuriated me as a student. There was a chapel where we had a guest speaker who was going to teach us about engaging our culture. And he would show various movie clips and discuss them. But those things would disgust me because one time they had the nerve to show nudity. It was for a brief moment, even for less than two seconds, but it was shown. On a second occasion, there was a scene of a passionate bedroom scene that was shown to us. A scene that makes me so awkward that usually I walk out of the room or change the channel. Here I am in chapel watching it. So I walked out of chapel and I talked to our dean. And many students did resonate with that thought. But there were those who did not. And at the next issue of the newspaper, there was an article calling people like myself too strict. Lighten up. This is the world we live in. After all, the human body is beautiful, is it not? I can't lighten up when there are men on my floor wrestling with pornography and are seeing that in chapel. If we wrestle with purity in our daily lives, why would we put that in front of our eyes? When there are sisters of mine in the building next to ours who are struggling with their body image and to show the image of another in such a way, how can you tell them don't want that? People call me strict. But I'll tell you that God has blessed me and my family for these rules. These, these, I'm not going to call them rules for this perspective. There was something that we put in place while Eric and I were dating. Not always, but it came about several years into our relationship that we would not let our eyes see those things. And we've maintained those standards even as married people. I've heard, I hear t- uh, people say sometimes, when I'm married, then I'll watch that movie. Why? For what benefit? 
And some of you here today feel, feel these words pierce your heart. And the deceiver might be trying to get you to think otherwise and say, well, this is the way you've been doing it for years. I mean, what haven't you seen that you're not going to see again? It's not the issue is what you have or have not seen. The issue is holiness. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, training us, instructing us, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly passions. To deny the Spirit's leading is to quench Him. Then we're like the world. Some might cry legalism. That's legalism. Let me define legalism. C.J. Mahaney actually has the best definition. Legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. In other words, a legalist is anyone who behaves as if they can earn God's approval and forgiveness through personal performance. That's a correct definition. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Paul is saying. That's why that's not what I'm saying. Paul said... Salvation is not by works, lest any man should boast. But then here he tells them, live in holiness. This is a matter of holiness. So he says we need to deny those two things and then embrace these three things. We must live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present generation. We need a change of taste buds. I remember the best steak I've ever had. It was on the 95th floor of the John Hancock building, and I didn't pay for it. (laughs) A good friend of mine knew a very wealthy man who lived in Hawaii, who came over, brought like eight of us to the 95th floor, and told us, I would be offended if you ordered based on price. That meant a New York strip steak for me. And that was the best steak I've ever had. And every steak I've ever had since, I measure it by that standard. (laughs) And I say, that was good. (laughs) But it wasn't the 95th floor. Have your taste buds shifted yet? Have you tasted of God's beauty enough that the things of this world are lesser? Why would you settle for lesser? Well, what if your taste buds are not such? Two things I want to say. Give yourself over to meditating upon the cross, upon its beauty. Soak in Christ's work. And ask God, secondly, to show you when your taste buds are off. God, when I watch this television show, help me see the underlining agenda from the producer. Help me recognize when my heart is starting to veer off to the right or to the left. Help me see these lesser pleasures and then see them for what they are and may the cross be beautiful. Paul continues on. 
that we pursue this lifestyle while in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our hope. And we will continue in this lifestyle of holiness until that hope is fully manifested. First John 3 tells us that as we wait upon Him, we too will become pure, just as He is pure when we see Him. And this hope of His return purifies us just as He is pure. With the hope of heaven beyond your minds, with the appearing of the glory of Jesus Christ, I think that's the first thing we'll see when He comes back. It's His glory. We'll just see His glory descending from the heavens. He'll say, come with me, my child, for those who've placed your trust in me. I can't skip over this one blaring theological truth here. What does Paul call Jesus here? He calls him our great God and Savior. Don't let people tell you the Bible doesn't teach Jesus is God. I've had people tell that to me. Jesus never claimed to be God. But I don't teach Jesus as God. Make a list of all these incidents and put Titus 2 right there. Put John 1 1, John 10 30. Every time Jesus is accused of blasphemy, which is a claim to be God. Every time he forgives sins, what only God can do. Jesus is God, and because he's God, he can do what verse 14 says. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We pursue sacredness, holiness, and sin city because ultimately that is our identity as the church. Jesus purified for himself a bride. Where's bride? He went through the most excruciating pain because he wanted a bride. And as a side note, this is where Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code's way off the mark. Jesus couldn't marry Mary Magdalene. He's got a bride. He's not an adulterer. Jesus has a bride. It's the church. And if he purified us for his possession, shouldn't we live in that purity? We're zealous for good works. We can't wait to do them. Jesus, this is who you made us. And Paul tells Titus at the end, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let no one tell you this is too strict. Don't let people tell you that's not true. Or we don't have to do all of that. Or we don't have to be this. Let no one disregard you. My brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, would you reject the ways of this world and live countercultural lives fueled by the beauty of the gospel? Would you let the gospel fuel your lifestyle? And this is the decision you've got to make that I mentioned at the beginning. Would you do that? Do you want to do that? That's between you and God. If you choose no, then know that you walk in disobedience. 
you are truly God's child, why wouldn't you want to? For the grace of God has appeared and brings salvation to all people and it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age while we wait for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who redeemed us from all lawlessness to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I pray that that would be you. Father God, we commit this to you. Oh Lord Jesus, help us. When the gospel isn't sweet to us, break us, God. When the evil things of this world seem beautiful, God, show us. God, grab us. Lord, we want you. We do. For those who don't know you, Jesus, will they come to know you and taste and to taste the best. In Jesus' name, amen. I want the prayer counselors to come forward. If you want to be prayed for, if something here that God spoke to you, and you want prayer, you want someone to come alongside of you, come forward in prayer. Zephaniah 3.17 is a verse that brings me comfort. It gives me great joy because it reminds